Good morning. Again, as Chris has already said, we encourage you to be part of our fellowship this evening. If there's incentive for you to come tonight, I'm not going to be preaching. How's that? <laughs> it's really a time where we gather, we bow our knees to an audience of one, and we fellowship and worship that audience of one. And it'll be a lovely time tonight, so we really encourage you to be here for that. It's a significant part of who we are. We're in Advent series, and last week we talked about what it means to listen for God. This week we want to talk about watching for God. Next week, desiring God. And if you get the theme, it's our ears, it's our eyes, and it's our hearts. How do we keep them focused on Christ during this holiday season that is so full of distractions? I want to begin with a prayer. It's a rote prayer that we're going to pray together. It comes from Puritans. So pray this with me. Lord of heaven, your goodness is inexpressible and inconceivable. In the works of creation, you are almighty. In the gospel of grace, all love. And in your son, you have provided for our deliverance from the effects of sin, the justification of our persons, the sanctification of our natures, the perseverance of our souls in the path of light. Grant us always to know that to walk with Jesus makes other interests a shadow and a dream. Save us from the delusion of those who fail to go far in Christ, who are concerned but not converted, who have another heart but not a new one, who have light, passion, and confidence but not Christ. Let us judge our Christianity not only by our dependence on Jesus, but by our love for him, our conformity to him, and our knowledge of him. Amen. Last week, we talked about what it means to listen for God, and we used these five points. We said God is not frustrated by history, present or past, but directs all things to culminate according to his purpose. Secondly, we talked about listening first requires that we value the one who is speaking. And that really talks about our hearts. Do we desire Christ like we should? Third, that we said listening means we do what we already know, things that God tells us to do that are really clear. We learn to obey because we trust him, understanding that he loves us and knows what's best. Number four, listening requires that we understand the possibility of being wrong. There's a lot of things we have to unlearn, isn't there? There's lies, sometimes they're religious lies that we just have grown into our minds and hearts that we have to strip ourselves from. Then number five, listening means we position ourselves with a heart of gratitude. This morning I want to talk about eyes, what we choose to see. We're going to put a, a graphic up and tell me what you see. Here's the first one. Now what's funny about this, by the way, it says only a genius will see the cat. People sit there and say, I got to see the cat. I have to see the cat. I want to be a genius. That doesn't mean anything. It's something somebody put. How many people can see the cat? Okay. Just the eyes and the ears and the face. It depends how you look at the screen, whether or not you see the cat. Okay. If you look at the middle of the screen and stare at it without blinking, it comes into focus. Isn't that true with Jesus? It depends how we look 
it will determine what we see. Now, here's the next one. What do you see, young lady or an old lady? How many people see an old lady? Raise your hand. How many people see a young lady? Okay. My eyesight, they just flip back and forth. It's, it's crazy. Go back and forth to old and young, and some people are saying, I don't see the old lady. Some are saying, I don't see the young lady. Okay. We watch for Jesus. Israel watched for the Messiah. They longed for the Messiah. They prayed for the Messiah. And during what we called the 400 silent years last week we talked about, they created images of what he would look like. Even though Isaiah spoke pretty directly and other prophets spoke pretty directly about what he would look like. And don't we do this on a fairly regular basis? We have these preconceived images. When I graduated high school, I went for a year in San Francisco to work at a mission. And I arrived about two weeks late because there was some harvest delays in the farm. And when I got there, the other VS personnel, voluntary service personnel were there, there were about 14 of them. They're there to greet me from the airport. I still remember one girl, she looked at me and walked away without saying anything. And she didn't talk to me for several months. I'm thinking, okay, what did I do? Finally, when she broke her silence, I had to ask her, I said, so I'm just curious. You know, that night you walked away and you haven't talked to me for three months. What's up? She says, well, she goes, I heard so much about you before you came that when I finally saw you, I was so disappointed, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> Man, that's good for the ego, isn't it? But it's why we miss Jesus. It's why they miss the Messiah. Even though he completely fulfilled over 300 prophecies, the mathematical odds of fulfilling every one were staggering. They knew their scriptures, but somehow they formed this image, and when Jesus came, they said, this cannot be the one. I think in similar fashion, watching for the Messiah in the second return, we do similar things. We have our versions of what Jesus looks like. We have our versions of how it's going to be done. We have our versions of how we should live because of who Jesus is. And so often we argue and we divide over things that should not divide us. And by the way, here's my take. Talking about a second return, however Christ wants to do it is okay with me. <laughs> That's my take. I'm not going to dictate by how I perceive a particular image. And what I realize is that I must become a student in humility of Jesus. So let's look at the word watch for a moment. Here's what it says in the dictionary. The word watch. To look at or observe attentively over a period of time. To exercise care, caution, or restraint. Now, I want you to look at those three words. Care, caution, and restraint. When you watch. For instance, restraint. People say, you know, I have to watch what I eat because I'm on a diet. Caution? Well, I have to watch the pot on the stove because it might boil over and just spill everything out. Care? Well, you know, today I got to watch a loved one because they need my help. They need someone to come alongside. So as you think about what it means to watch for Jesus, I want you to think about those three words in our lives. I want you to think about restraint, caution, and care. 
Now let's look at some scripture. Matthew chapter 24. This is in the NIV. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. That's the caution. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Okay, I am on the wrong verse. Let me back up for a second. That's a good verse. False teachers and teachers. Matthew 24, verse 42. I evidently did not put this one in. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. Again, what he means there is pay attention. Take care how you live. Now let's look at Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And by the way, the context here, they're having an argument over an inheritance. So Jesus says this in Luke 12, verse 15. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in abundance of his possessions. Again, think about caution. Watch out. Think about restraint. Be careful how you spend your money. But think about care. Look at where you give your money away. You have to watch what God has blessed you with. Luke 17, verse 3. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Caution. Be careful you don't get drawn into their sin. Caution. Make sure you forgive. Because if you take in a sin of offense, you will not care. And you will hurt the relationship. And over and over again, we have this word watch in Scripture. It means to pay attention. And we pay attention to Christ in the long view, his second coming. But also it means pay attention to your life. What does it mean to grow in Christ? What is it? And it's more than avoiding sin. It deals with all kind of heart issues. It deals with community. So I'm going to talk about two questions this morning. Where is Jesus today? And what does he look like? Where is Jesus today? And what does he look like? The first passage I want to turn to about where Jesus is today is Ephesians chapter 1. You can turn there with me. It'll be on the screen as well. In verse 17, it says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one that is to come. He has put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, there's a lot that we can unpack there, but just let me do a quick crib note for you on this. Where is he at today? We know he's alive. Amen? He's not dead. He is one of the only religious leaders or prophets that rose from the dead. 
He's on his throne. Amen? He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And this passage says it is over everything, over all of creation. And it's why we have to worship the creator and not his creation. But it also says in this life, but also the life to come. Three, he is the head of the church. He is the brain. And without the head, the body ceases to exist. In medical terms, we call being brain dead. It is his eyesight, his vision that guides us. It is his eyes that we see with. It's his voice we listen to in this world, the voice of God. It also says the church, number four, is the fullness of him. What that means, and this is rather an incredible revelation, the church is the fullness of him. We are the visible representation of Christ. Okay? People that cannot see Christ, they are watching us. We're going to talk about that in a moment, but think about that. The only knowledge and the only vision that people have of Jesus is by watching what we do. We are called as ambassadors. It means our primary kingdom is not of this world, but we seek peace and reconciliation in this kingdom. So where is he? He's alive. He's sitting on his throne. He is the head of the church. He is God incarnate. And his spirit lives within the temple, which is our bodies. So what does he look like? It's a significant question. Because how we view him will determine how we live. Now, I'm not talking about those pictures we have hanging on our wall or those images of Jesus we see in movies. I mean, for most part, I think that's some created image, and I get a little crazy because it always seems like he's this, this American-looking guy with long hair that never gets upset at anything. And yet, we know he ticked people off that they wanted to kill him all the time. We know he walked in the temple. He started throwing tables around. We know he called evil spirits out. So, I, you know, that, that whole imagery, I think we kind of get it. We have to get away from Hollywood, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is far too often, and this is the term that they're using today, we're practical atheists. What that means is we don't live like he's alive. We don't live like he has the power to make a difference. We don't live like he has the authority over our world. Or sometimes the image of Jesus we have is that he's some kind of grand Santa Claus, that if I live right, then cha-chink, 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 I get enough money, I stay healthy, I never get in a car accident. There are images of Jesus. So often as someone we do not give our lives over to. It's about us, it's about a narcissistic view of Jesus, and it's about our agendas and our schedules, not about what he sees. And so we fail to listen. Now let me read a description of himself. Isaiah chapter 53, the first three verses. Here's what it says. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom he has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should despise him, desire him. 
He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, I'm going to read that same passage in a paraphrase. A paraphrase is kind of an explanation, you know, word for word, what this says, and puts it in modern day language. Here's the paraphrase. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him and thought he was scum. Now, what that means is if Jesus was going to apply to be our pastor at TBC, we probably wouldn't even interview him. He doesn't fit our criteria. He doesn't fit how we see him. So when you put an image of Christ together, I mean, think about this. He made unparalleled claims about himself. He claimed he was God. He proclaimed he had complete supremacy over everything, that he is actually on the throne, that he is navigating history to culminate to a point <laughs> where he will come again and he will set everything with his justice. He claims to be exclusive. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And yet he's inclusive. He says, anyone who comes, I will heal, will bring into relationship with my Father. He claims that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that anyone can come. So why does it matter? Why does it matter where he is and what he looks like? If you haven't noticed, in our world, things are a bit unsettled. <laughs> the bottom line, when you look at sociologists, they say there is no authority today. We as individuals get to decide everything, literally. We get to decide everything. They claim there is no right or wrong, but what fascinates me is we accuse each other of things that are right and wrong. You can't have it both ways. But today, anybody can decide they can be anything they want. There is no power to change. And when there's no power to change, everything becomes a revolving door. You're in the door, you're out the door. You're in the door, you're out the door. But that's our world. That's not the design of creation and the creator. See, the design of the creator and the creation is that Christ can do in you and through you what this world is incapable of. Amen? He can actually fix what is broken. I know we try to fix people. We try to do the whole codependent dance and, and we acquiesce. But only Christ can fix what is broken. My question is, have we settled for something far less than who actually Christ is and where he is? This quote from C.S. Lewis out of his book, The Weight of Glory, here's what he said. It would seem 
that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Isaiah 58 is one of my favorite passages. I want you to read with me verses 11 and 12. Here's what it says. You know, after everything Israel's going through and talking about the Messiah and all this kind of trouble they're doing, here's what God says through Isaiah. And the Lord will guide you continually. Is that what we see? Do we listen for his voice guiding or, or do we tell him how he should guide us? And satisfy your desire. Do we really believe that? Because look at the next phrase. In scorched places. That phrase is used of a place where nothing grows. And it's not a fun place to be. And I know some of you were there this morning. and Some of you just were there maybe last week or last month. But he says, listen, in those places where we feel like all is lost, we feel like everything's died, we feel like there's no hope, God will guide us continually and satisfy our desires. And he will make our bones strong. Is that the kind of Jesus we see? You shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. And he's describing what's called an oasis in the midst of a desert. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You ever feel kind of old and defeated and broken down? You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You know, so often in the field of counseling, we talk about breaking the chain of destruction, where grandfather passed it to dad who passed it to their kids. Do we believe that can happen? that you shall raise up foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. I mean, what an incredible reputation to have. I love those verses. But do we believe that? Now remember, all the world's religions, as complex and significant they are in terms of popularity and wealth, there's only one that lived among us who predicted his own death, who predicted his own resurrection, and pulled it off. There's only one. And as far as I'm concerned, anyone who can do that has my attention. So we have to watch. Why? One of the key reasons is because people are watching us. And we are the visible representation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He's talking to a group of people that are being persecuted, who are being killed, who lose their jobs, who's losing their families. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. People are watching. People want to see hope. They don't want to see agreement. They may think they do. They don't want to come along and just have a friend. They want someone who will offer them true and genuine hope. Amen? 
He says, but you know, do it with gentleness and respect. <laughs> Don't sit there and say, stupid, what are you doing this for again? Say, listen, let's sit down, let's talk. Here's what Christ can do. He can repair, he can rebuild. He can make your bones strong. He can grant you desires even though you are living in a completely desolate place. And he will be with you. You know, last week we talked about what's called the 400 silent years. God really wasn't silent, but we have the end of the writing of the Old Testament. Here were Malachi's last words before there was this silence in terms of the Old Testament. Here's what he said. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from a stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Malachi is actually skipping the first coming and going to the second coming. But he's also saying, listen, until you get there, what do you do? Remember the law. Remember the law. Do what you know. In verse 6, and he will turn the hearts of the of their fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. They were his last works, silence, Jesus shows. Final words of Jesus. Okay? And then nothing from him until he comes again. Here's what he said. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to watch Jesus to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's us, isn't it? We see him all the time. He works, and yet for reason we get these lies into our heads. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. It doesn't say go therefore and get someone to pray a prayer. It says go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do we believe in that kind of Jesus? I'm going to close with a video I've showed before. It's not necessarily high quality, but its point is relevant. And it just kind of reminds us again of who this Jesus is. Let's see the video. <laughs> 